0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. Today with me, I have Alex Vipond. I think I said that right. You just told me yep. 10 seconds ago, right? <laughs> So, Alex is our special guest, and we are here to talk about view and reusability in view. how to make things and use them again so you don't have to rewrite the same code. But before we get started, Alex, why don't you give us a little intro? Tell us who you are, why you're famous, what you do, where you work,
1: et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Sure, yeah. Well, famous is a stretch, but I don't know. On Twitter, anybody can be famous these days, I suppose. I'm Alex. I live uh, just north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've been a front-end engineer for maybe five, six years now, and I just recently moved to take a front-end engineering job with BetterHelp which is an online therapy platform, one of the biggest ones definitely in in the US, if not the world. So that's really fun work, Uh, really nice to be writing code that uh, is meaningful and helps people out with their mental health, any issues they might be facing. So love doing that. We run into reusability. We don't use Vue at work, but we run into reusability problems all the time. And I'm sure many people have. You run into these files that are thousands, if not tens of thousands of lines of code. So much of it is repeated. So much of it is tangled up with business logic. And yeah, hopefully today we can talk all about in view, view three, and probably a little bit in view two. We can talk about how to untangle some of that stuff. Move the logic that doesn't matter to a place where it can be hidden away, tucked away, customized easily, and kept separate from the business logic, which at the end of the day is what moves all of us forward, whether we're working on actual business projects or whether it's side projects that we're just doing for fun. The business logic is the stuff that is unique and fun a lot of the times rather than you know writing yet another set of keyboard event listeners to move focus around between a custom list box or something like that. So yeah, that's the uh, basic intro about me and who I am and where I work.
2: Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But What I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech Once again, that's TopEndDevs.com.
0: Okay, so let's go back a little bit. I'm always intrigued to hear development history and what you did before you got into view. Funny, I've seen on Twitter recently, I've seen a few polls or questions that people have put out on Twitter. And what did you first start coding in? And it's really funny to see some of the responses. You know, mine sort of ages me a bit, but mine was basic on a Commodore 64 I see people that go back as far as punch cards and Fortran and, and some <laughs> yeah. of those, uh, some of those ancient languages, COBOL. So uh, how'd you start in development? Where'd you start out and how'd you end up getting into View? Yeah, so
1: I did not study anything related to development, didn't really work in the field at all. I just kind of had a penchant, I guess, for the sort of creative problem-solving that we do as developers. The technology always made sense to me, and so it's just something that attracted me over time. I think a lot of us know that it's very unique as an industry in that it's super, it's way easier than other industries to get into a programming job having no formal education or training in the topic. So much of this is about self-education Even if you do have the formal education, it's still about self-education and continuous learning. So that was kind of my way in just having the industry be, uh, be like that. But uh, what I started with, I was on Khan Academy that I, I owe so much to them. Honestly, I got on Khan Academy and started learning basic HTML, CSS and JavaScript. And that was mid 2016 ish. So React was still rising rapidly, not even as big as it is now. Reactivity frameworks in general and things like Bootstrap were super popular. Tailwind wasn't quite on the scene yet. But yeah, I think I really did get lucky just sort of deciding to go with the basics, just the fundamentals, and not jumping right into a bootcamp or or a reactivity framework. I know people have been successful that way. But for me, I felt like I really got a lot out of just sticking to the basics, learning how JavaScript works, learning how CSS works. And then after a year or so deciding, hey, let's make a jump into reactivity frameworks. And I picked up Vue as my first one. So yeah, that's, that's how I got into it. Eventually, I did get into a job with a company called Kumu, really super neat company that does, they have a data visualization project uh, for visualizing networks and systems and, and things like that. Think about like Excalibur, but you also can like have full programmatic control with CSS to style the the visualization and all that kind of stuff. So really fun company, really challenging geometry and drawing problems to work on. And that company used React. So still I was mostly using Vue on side projects and on the weekend. But yeah, that was kind of my entrance into the world of development and uh, front end frameworks and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I like the the approach you mentioned about just learning the basics first and then jumping in, because I learned, I mentioned this before, where I learned the languages through frameworks. So, for instance, I learned PHP through getting, well, actually, learns learned a lot of PHP just on its own, but then Drupal learned a lot more there, and then I learned Mm -hmm. JavaScript. First through Angular, Angular 1, Angular JS, what they call it now, is what the kids mm-hmm. call it these days. And then, um, view, getting into view uh, after bailing on the Angular 1 to Angular 2 rewrite. So yeah, I would say that's definitely oh. a, a better way to go. You find yourself wanting to know the underlying things instead of the syntactic sugar that's on top of JavaScript. Sure. That handles yeah. all that
1: stuff. Yeah, and and like I said, I picked up Vue as my first choice. And uh, I think a lot of us work with both Vue and React just because of professional opportunities. Certainly, I don't think I would have been able to land any job in React at all if I had just started straight up with Vue and not known the fundamentals about JavaScript and how it works. Knowing JavaScript made it so much easier to say, okay, I know JavaScript and I know Vue. And I want this job, but they write React. And that was enough for me to figure out okay, here's how React works. Here's the similarities. Here's what, here's Reacty stuff, here's Vuey stuff, and here's the JavaScript stuff that gets shared between them. Array manipulation, all the basic kind of stuff that you need to know, regardless of, of what you're building and what framework you're using. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. So,
0: have you delved into any backend languages, you know, like PHP, Java, Go, Rust, Node,
1: et cetera? I've written at my current job and my previous job, I've written just a shade of Ruby. Ruby and PHP, less to kind of build th- full things and, and services and make architectural decisions. Certainly not any of that stuff, but fixing up APIs, changing API response shapes to to fit front end needs, uh, maybe writing a migration or something here and there. That kind of stuff I can definitely get in again because of of learning the fundamentals of JavaScript, you learn the fundamentals of programming along with that. And uh, you start to read some PHP or Ruby or whatever it is. Or maybe you're even reading JavaScript on the back end in in Node or something. And just having the principles of the fundamental language makes it um, at least possible to start to parse out the logic that's going on. Because I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's really a lot of it's all the same sort of problem solving mindset. It's just a question of does this code need to have special privileges? And if so, it should run on the back end or if it needs to be particularly efficient in a certain way it's not like you're writing entirely different things you're still using logic and programming to solve problems you're just making a decision about how efficient and privileged does this code need to be if it needs both of those things I run it on the back end possibly in a different language so that's, that's kind of the way that I've come to think about it.
0: Cool so oh so, so it sounds like you're dealing with some maybe some code privilege there?
1: Well when i, when I yeah, that's my cultural <laughs> joke for the day
0: <laughs> oh
1: man, I totally missed that it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I take some getting used to. That's why you roll that's why you roll the drums, right? Cuz if the joke doesn't land, the, the drums will bring it home. <laughs> that's right. You got to
0: remind people sometimes, "Hey, that's supposed to be funny." Yeah. So what what do you work with during the day? Are you doing React and BetterHelp?
1: Yes, uh, React and PHP primarily, and was using React in my previous job as well. Next.js framework uh, at both places. Okay, yeah, Next is React version of Nuxt for Vue, I guess. Yeah. So you work similar. with, so you're working with Vue just on side projects then, and things outside of your normal day to day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think for me, long term, I don't plan to leave larger companies or things like that, I don't think, but I still entertain dreams of having a little couple of side products that I sell and run on my own. Mm -hmm. Even the book that we're going to talk about today, the book I entirely I wrote in Markdown, rendered in view with Tailwind and then printed from Chroma's or PDF. So even stuff like that, you know, like programming just gives you superpowers to start these little mini side businesses or, or side projects, even if it's not an income earning thing, mm-hmm. it allows you to just create things and put them out into the world. And Vue, for many reasons, is, uh, I think, the best reactivity framework. And so it's the one that I always reach for when I have the choice and when I have full control over what the tooling is going to be and what I'm going to use. I reach for Vue and then I write a lot of my own stuff with Vue to support the UI and and stuff like that.
0: Awesome. So just as a refresher, Alex has been on this podcast before, before my days back in episode 64. And I totally forgot what you talked about. (laughs) Remind me what.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I talked about really the, I was at the beginning of the journey that I've been on for the last, however many years it's been since that episode. Always trying to think about, making my view code more reusable and cleaner and separating different types of logic. But yeah, in that episode, I was talking mostly about renderless components, That's which right. I, it's a pattern that I still love, but it's one that I've moved away from in my more recent um, open source work for a few different reasons that maybe we'll get into the weeds of. But yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to come back and We're we're gonna frame this, I think, in a in a different way and come at it from a different angle. But at the core, it's still the same issue of how can we make our view code more readable, more maintainable, more reusable.
0: All right. So with that, let's get down into the nitty-gritty of what we want to talk about, which is reusability in view. Now, from a just from a general code standpoint, I think one of the most well-known principles is DRY. Don't repeat yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have to write the same code over and over and over that if not necessary, because it's just a waste of time and creates options or opportunities for bugs to creep in and so on. So mm-hmm. you want to write it once, use it, make it, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Configurable, malleable, yep. however you want to do it, and then let it go. Now on the other, to the other end of that, you don't want to take that too extreme. There are cases where sometimes you do have to repeat yourself for mm-hmm. various reasons. There's a. I wish I could find this blog post. I can remember reading it a number of years ago, where a developer was talking about how that can be taken too far, and how he was on some project and he saw some code and and said, oh, this is re- this is being repeated too so much. I need to clean this up and make it dry." And committed the code, comes back and the next morning comes back into the work the next morning. His manager said, "Yeah, you did that, and you broke a bunch of stuff." So you need to reverse that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that obviously can be taken too far. So with that amazing intro, I want not talk about reusability, I guess, how you see it and then how we would implement that in Vue?
1: Yeah. So I think, yeah, to your point, reusability is the right concept to strive for for a certain category of logic in our apps. It's Fine to, I think often we over-componentize and we take chunks of markup or even very small things and turn them into components when they don't need to be and they don't need to be reused in that way. And we have extremely powerful text editors with extremely powerful find and replace. You learn a little, little bit of regex and you can fix pretty much any problem with any sort of repeated code snippet that's throughout your app. So even repeating stuff multiple times is not the end of the world. Usually I try to repeat things and copy paste code until it's painful, which usually is, you know, like three plus times writing the same thing, or the code itself gets to a certain level of complexity, or you want to use it across multiple different projects or publish it in an NPM or something like that. And so in cases like that, even if you're just using the same thing twice, like once in one app and once in the other app, that's a pain, because now you're like switching between entire working directories or repositories or whatever, just to repeat the same sort of thing. So yeah, reusability is is an itch that you will start to feel, and you'll want to scratch it. And there's a lot of different ways in Vue to scratch that itch. Some of them will work temporarily. Some of them will work for a long time, for the long term. And that's kind of what I've been exploring. Definitely happy to go into any of those individual technologies if we want to take it that way.
0: I guess the the, the initial question would be if since we're talking about Vue, let's go back to Vue two. You know, Vue three mm-hmm. is you know the, the new hot thing and and is out, but there's still a lot of U2 code out there. Yep. You know it's going to be for a while. But in U2, how would you what t- kind of yeah. tool? What tools would you use to
1: create uh, avoid repeat uh, repeated code or create reusability? Yeah, yeah definitely. And. It's a really good place to start because the reality is that a lot of those tools are still relevant in Vue 3. Even now with the latest minor version of Vue 2 supporting the Composition API, and now it's going to be possible to backport composables and all those new fun shiny things, it's going to be able to backport those to Vue 2 with very little, if any, work and make them work and and use the same patterns and use the new stuff. But still, a lot of the old tools are, are going to be useful. Some of them not as much, but some of them still. So there's directives, for example. I'm sure many of us have at least seen directives. Well, we've definitely all seen them. Things like vON, v4, v bind, all of these things are built-in view directives. A lot of us tend to use custom directives, whether ones that we import from third-party libraries or that we write ourselves. Like, you know, I think a classic example is a a v focus, for example. You could write a v focus directive that when the page is loaded, if you have v focus on a certain element in your view template, that will register as soon as the comp the component is mounted, and it will then automatically focus that element, which is not always necessary. If you're if you're using something like an HTML text input, you can use attributes often to just do that. But if you're writing something a little bit more custom, like maybe you're building a custom text input and it's not based on an HTML text input literally under the hood you need to port that functionality over and so you could write a little v-focus directive and now you can slap v-focus on the the div or whatever element it is you're rendering under the hood and you have caught back up with what the browser is gener- is able to do sometimes it's better to just use the html text input but there are certainly cases where building your own custom thing is useful and in those kind of cases you could use directives to to import some of that different functionality.
0: So, I think my, you know, in that case where I've got something custom, I would generally probably go for a custom component as compared to your directive. What's the benefit of using a, a directive in a case like that?
1: Yeah, a directive is good. Uh, directives, generally, in my experience, they're good for logic that performs a side effect on a particular DOM node and generally you don't you can't really manage states in a directive either so it has to be kind of a stateless effect so a, a really great view directive that i came across lately is from the form kit team and it's called auto animate and so you can you can put this v auto animate directive on a on the root element of a rendered list And then they've got all kinds of different logic working behind the scenes so that when the list changes and re-renders, basically on the on updated view lifecycle hook, it will basically animate. It will automatically animate that transition for you nicely out of the box. I don't know if, like, what they use under the hood, whether it's JS transitions or CSS transitions, but I know that you get you can get really nice entrance animations for list items, and then when things reorder, it doesn't just snap into place and kind of create that janky user experience. It actually animates one element and another one switching places nicely. So that to do that, all of that kind of work, which is very complex and a great example of something you would not want to repeat and have to rewrite a lot of different times across an application. You can just put their V auto animate directive on the element and it handles everything else for you. And that's built into Vue too. That's that's a third party it's thing. A third party. Okay. I think it. I think they've got a, both a Vue two and a Vue three version, but it is a directive. And so, yeah, that's you know that's a good reason to start talking about directives because directives are a feature that is still relevant in Vue three in certain use cases. A lot of people are replacing directives now with composables, and just because you can often use either technology to implement the same kind of thing, like you could you could auto animate. A list of elements from inside a composable if you wanted to write that kind of a composable. But you can also write a directive to do that. So for some people, it's like if you write the directive, then it's going to work in both View 2 and View 3. So might as well have that. And then maybe also write the composable for just View 3 users if you want to expose maybe some additional TypeScript support or configuration options or stuff like that. That's a little bit trickier to do sometimes with directives.
0: Okay, so directives is one option. I know. Some people will frown on this and some people will say it's good. I know mix fins is a real common way mm-hmm. to do reusability in Vue that it has its pros and cons. You know, the pros is it basically just merges into a component. You can define your props and your data values and your, mm-hmm. you know, your methods and your watches and all that kind of stuff in there and then it just merges in. So what's
1: your thoughts on on Mixins for reusability? Yeah, so Mixins, it's like the the classic example, right? Of what we're all like, quote unquote, supposed to look down on and not use anymore. Mixins also still work in Vue 3 and oh, I'd have to check that. They definitely still work in Vue 2. I don't know how much they... They've been changed or removed in View 3. Been a little while since I checked that out. But mixins have their place as well, especially if you're writing a smaller project or it's a project with very few third party dependencies, maybe no third party mixins at all. But yeah, mixins are like a step up from directives, where directives mainly just register side effects to run at particular times in the component lifecycle. For example, auto focusing when the component mounts or auto-animating some elements when the component mounts and after individual list updates, stuff like that. A mix-in is what you would use if you actually need to store state. So if you have, I'm trying to think of a good example of a, of a mix-in, maybe another one that's a little bit on the simpler side, but still could be done as a mix-in. Let's say you are writing a HTML input and a label and you want to, to, you want to link them up so that when you click the label, it focuses the input. Normally the way you do that is you'd put an ID on the HTML input and then you would put that id in the for attribute of the label so you have label for my input whatever and then you can click the label and it auto focuses the input the annoying thing about that is if you're making this into a custom text input component now all of a sudden you have to accept a prop that says like what's the id of this input because the id has to be unique across the entire application um, and if you're exporting this as a third party it needs to be unique across any application that might decide to use your your HTML text input component. So now you have to expose this prop and require that people pass in an ID just so that you can get this little bit of functionality working between the label and the text input. You could instead write a mix in that in your component, when the component mounts, it just generates a unique ID, stores that in in the state and the data of the component, and then you bind that piece of data to the for attribute of the label and to the ID of the input. So you've got your unique ID generating when the component mounts, it automatically gets bound by view to the label and the HTML text input. Now you can click the label and it focuses the text input. Or if this is like a checkbox, you can click the label and it'll check the checkbox. And all of that happens without having to add this additional plot, this additional prop to your component. You don't have to like bloat your component props with all these tiny little details that people shouldn't have to be concerned about in their day-to-day when they're trying to use your component. So you could write that mix in that says like on mounted, generate this unique ID and store it. It could just be a simple counter or whatever that a global counter where you're saying like the ID is one and then the next input renders and the next I- input gets a ID of two. You store that in the component state and you you bind that to the input in the label. So that's a way of approaching that problem. And then, of course, the, the problem with that is that if you have multiple different mixins working on a component, you might have more than one mix-in that's trying to store data in the same data property or they're setting up watchers that conflict with each other And so it's kind of easy to fall in that trap, especially when you're pulling in third party code and you don't know exactly how it's written or what they're using, you can really quickly run into very difficult to debug problems, because there's just some sort of like small naming collision or something that's happening behind the scenes. And it gets really, really difficult to figure that stuff out when the when the application gets a little older and grows in complexity. So mixins, they still they work, they're definitely a valid solution. But because they have alternatives now, that's why they're generally not recommended. Because it's kind of like, we have this technology and it has risks and it has pros and cons. We have this other piece of technology, which in Vue 3 is composables. It has all the same pros and has none of the same cons. So. If they're basically the same thing, but one has none of the cons, let's just go with that one. So I think that's kind of the logic between everybody saying, don't use mixins in your apps, but they work, you know, at the end of the day, like in certain cases, they will work. They will bind that ID to the label and they will bind it to the text input and the feature will work at the end of the day, which, you know, is what matters in the moment. In the long term, it's a little bit different to think about how can we make sure this keeps working five years in the future. But yeah, there's, there's different perspectives to take on that.
0: Okay, so before we delve into View 3, any other uh, View 2 tools or methods that uh, are good ones for reusability?
1: Yeah, so the final one that I would take from View 2 is the one that I talked about in my first Views on View episode, and that is the renderless component. So with renderless components, you can make a component that accepts a slot, and it doesn't actually render anything of its own, it just renders the slot. And behind the scenes, using the component lifecycle, it will do different things. Like I think the classic example of a renderless component is a fetching component where you can imagine you're writing your view template and you bring in this fetch component and you you set up this component and you pass in the fetch URL as a prop. And then you have a slot inside of that component and the slot will render with access to whatever data is returned from the fetch response. And so that is a way of implementing fetch in a reusable way where you don't have to go in and confront the fetch logic. Are we using AJAX here or are we using the browser's native fetch API? All that kind of stuff that you would have to worry about if you were just writing this and kind of like building it into your component in the options API, writing custom methods and stuff like that. You can just forget about all that logic, forget about maybe any like authentication keys or whatever. Maybe the component does all that stuff for you. It knows how to grab an API key from local storage or something and pass that along with the fetch URL. All that kind of stuff can be wrapped up in the component logic. And then the component just accepts your slot and it renders your slot with whatever data it got back from the fetch response. So a really nice way to Get rid of all that logic that is not your business logic. The business logic is what's actually, what's the data coming back from the database? And what are we supposed to do with that data? And what do we show to the user on the screen? And that's what you need to be worried about in that moment rather than like, I can't remember how to configure Ajax to do this thing. So I should do that now in a custom method and spend 15 minutes figuring that out before I get back to my business logic. So yeah, renderless components are are probably my favorite way of reusing code in Vue 2. So using that Fetch API connection logic that you discussed, what's the benefit of
0: doing it in a in a renderless function versus, say, an, an action in VueX or some other JavaScript ways of, of calling that API and getting the data?
1: Yeah, a code organization, I think, is a big part of it. Like for, for some of these little implementation details, like that example of like, where is the API key stored? Is that in a cookie or is that in local storage or where do we get that from? That's the kind of logic that you don't really need to be mixing around in your global store because your global store is concerned about what is the data that's important to this application and needs to be globally available everywhere. How do we mutate that data and what do we do with it? That's like the main purpose of the global store. And as much as possible, you want your global store to kind of remain focused on that stuff. Whereas the lower level things like finding API keys and setting up the proper, like figuring out what's the base URL that this API endpoint is getting attached to, assembling a URL to fetch from or setting different options for that fetch request, that's the kind of implementation detail stuff that is, it's the exact kind of thing that very quickly adds hundreds of lines to global store code that should be focused on business logic and, and figuring out what data is coming back on the server and what to do with it. So that's like code organization, moving that stuff into a dedicated renderless component file uh, is a huge reason for me to, to go for that pattern versus mixing that in or writing a method in a component or putting that somewhere else. Okay,
0: so now let's move on to view three, reusability. And you've mentioned composables.
1: So let's start out by giving a definition of composables. Yeah, a composable for me is, uh, I think I have a stricter definition than most people, but uh, for, for me, a composable is a function. It doesn't have to accept parameters, but it often does. That function internally uses reactivity APIs from vue those would be things like the onmounted lifecycle hook or even just the simpler like the ref function in vue which you 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 call that function to create a reactive piece of data that you can move around so those reactive reactivity apis you import them from vue from vue3 you use them inside of the composable. And then for me, my composables always return something. Usually it's the reactive piece of data that they're creating, but it can be other stuff as well. So that for me is like the basics of a composable. Just any function that uses reactivity APIs internally and then returns something useful that you can use in your in your view template.
0: Yeah, looking at the Vue 3 documentation on what a composable is, one of the things that they stress is that it's stateful versus stateless logic. Mm-hmm. So in other words, HTTP is what probably the most famous stateless protocol, right? But the idea is that I have I'm going to do a counter function, shall we say, and I'm going to pass in 2 plus 2 or or math function, whatever you want to call it that will stay with it wherever you use it. I think I'm describing that as compared mm-hmm. to just a one time you call it, okay, this is Correct. original I got. Now I got to start over next time I use it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so maybe in uh, in kind of a little bit of a contrived example is like, imagine we are writing some sort of composable that's going to, I don't know, attach an event listener to an element, let's say the focus listener. It's going to perform some side effect when that element gets, focused. If you are just performing that side effect, let, let, let's say your composable is registering, it's adding an event listener to the document for focus, and then it's just logging some to the lo- logging some to the console or whatever when, when the element receives focus. And that's all that function is doing. That's, yeah, not really quite a composable. You would probably want to use the on-mounted lifecycle hook to make sure you're not trying to set up that event listener before the component is mounted or before the DOM is ready and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's kind of just performing a simple side effect. And there are other ways to achieve that goal that are probably more readable and and more obvious. Let's say on the other hand, you want to actually like track the focus status of a particular element. So if that element gets focused, you want to have a reactive piece of data And that data is a string, and it changes to focused when the element receives focus. And then it changes to blurred when the element loses focus. And you could watch that reactive piece of data, and you could do other things, like add a class to an element that's next to the input or something. Like maybe you want to change the label color when the the HTML text input is focused, or the HTML checkbox is focused. So when that checkbox receives focus, you're watching that piece of reactive data and saying, okay, it has changed from blurred to focused. And so now I'm going to apply this CSS class to the label to change its color. That is a good example of a composable because it's stateful logic. You're actually retrieving, you're like watching the status of this element and you're storing that status. And then you would return that status from the composable. And now you can set up watchers to... Watch that status and do things like other side effects around that related to that. So stateful logic it stores some piece of reactive data, it returns that so that whoever's calling this composable can get access to it and do whatever they need to do in their application to um, to react to that piece of data changing.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and Go to TopEndDevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's TopEndDevs.com slash coaching.
0: Yeah, the example they give in the documentation is a mouse tracker Mm -hmm. uh, that seems tracks the location of the mouse across the page. and, And then you can use that as you want. Yeah. So with reusability, you know, one of the things we mentioned earlier was being able to make it to make it more useful. You need to pass in, you know, parameters, arguments, pieces of data into it, right? Mm-hmm. At times, so that it can be used across uh, uh, a uh, a broader set of use cases from broader number of places. So talk about that, how do you, how is that handled? Is I mean, this is basically just JavaScript functions, right?
1: Yeah, so maybe for that mouse tracking example, like let's say we wanted to update the position of or something, whenever the mouse is moving around, whenever the mouse is like dragging it, maybe we're implementing some sort of custom drag and drop component. What we could do is set up a template ref, um, so you you, Go to the ref attribute on that element, give it a template ref, and then now you have access to that element in your setup function. You can pass it into the composable as an argument. So we'll say like use use mouse tracking or whatever. We'll say that's the name of our composable. Use mouse tracking. You pass in your, your ref to that element, your reference to that element as the first parameter. And now internally that function can say okay we're going to store the mouse position x and y coordinates we're also going to update the style of this element like the top and left position or whatever maybe we're going to translate it or something so that it moves around with the mouse and that would be one way that you could accept a parameter in this composable so that now your drag and drop logic of, of moving this element around or even animating it in some sort of nice way all of that logic can now move inside the composable instead of being tied up um, in in the component or in another place where it's less reusable. So that's, that would be an example of accepting an element ref in a composable. There are also other things that you could that you could accept. Like maybe this function has some sort of animation or transition that like, maybe there's like a spring effect where the, the element isn't just like moving around the screen in straight lines, really rigid. It actually like you drag your mouse and the element like snaps to your mouse position and has kind of a little spring. So it kind of like snaps to your mouse position and bounces around a little bit and then settles into place. Maybe there's some sort of like fancy spring animation like that going on. Um, that you need to build out. That kind of logic you could also implement inside of the composable. There are all kinds of different animation libraries that would be able to do that kind of thing. And and a lot of those animation libraries accept options for like for a spring animation like that. Like how strong should the spring be? How fast should the element snap into position? And how much time should it spend wiggling around before it finally settles into place and kind of stops moving? That kind of customization stuff you can also accept in the parameters of the of the function you can set up options accept different options as parameters and then pass those options through to um, whatever else whatever other code you're writing or any third-party libraries that you might be importing Um, just pass those options through and handle them inside the the composable so yeah it's not always about just like accessing dom elements it's often about customizing the actual logic that happens inside the composable and and changing slightly back like back to your point about, about configuration we need configuration all the time even within applications uh, and we have to have a way to do that. We have to have a way to configure different logic, especially if it's coming from a third party library. We need to be able to change slightly the way that it works without having to rewrite the entire thing ourselves from scratch. So yeah, composable parameters is what you would use to do that.
0: Okay, so before we move on, anything else to talk about regarding composables in terms of reusability, how to use them, when to use them, maybe some you mentioned a contrived example. What can you think of any, uh, what are some good real-world use cases for something, for a composable?
1: Yeah, so I am just pulling up right now View Use, which is the most, at this point, the most famous library of composables. So I'm on View Use. that's loading up, and I'll grab example from them. Been a little while since I was on this page. I don't know what kind of new stuff they have, but they have all kinds of really good real-world examples. They have, for example, a composable that will track the the user's color mode preference. So it uses under-the-hood match media queries to figure out whether the person prefers light mode or dark mode, like at a system level, at their computer level. So somebody on a Mac could go into system preferences and say, I want everything to be in dark mode right now. In your view application, you probably would want to then change your website to dark mode to match the user's system preferences. So view use, for example, has a a composable that you can use to figure out, to basically store the user's system preferences about theme um, store that in a piece of reactive state and then now you can watch that piece of state and you can apply different css classes to your application based on whether the, the user prefers light mode or dark mode or if they prefer reduced animation you can turn off the animations and so you know without this kind of thing we would basically like the user would load up the app we'd load it in light mode and we'd be stuck in light mode until they refresh the app and we have like a way to check their preferences again, maybe. But with a composable like this, with using Vue's reactivity system, we can actually catch in the instant that they change their system preferences, we can detect that it has changed, and we can react to that in our application so the user doesn't have to reload the page entirely to get dark mode. They just get dark mode right away without reloading. Um, so that's a really nice real-world use case for this kind of stuff.
0: So how about from a data fetching standpoint, you know, on the the very large app that I deal with on a day-to-day basis, data is a huge part of what we're doing because we're providing that to customers. Mm-hmm. So would you use the composable just for maybe some straight, you know, hit the API, get the data, return the data Yeah,
1: totally. Uh, type thing? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do that often in my side projects. That's how I prefer to do it. I think when we start to mess around with async code, things start to get really tricky really fast. And so for me, I prefer to honestly just forget that await and async were ever introduced to JavaScript and all. And what I do instead is I use a fetch composable And the fetch composable, we'll just call it use fetch. you pass in a URL, an endpoint that you're trying to fetch data from. Maybe you pass in a few other parameters that need to be attached to the fetch request or, or customize the fetch method, whether it's get or post or whatever. You can pass all that stuff in as parameters to the composable. And then internally, the composable can create a reactive piece of state with us. And we'll call it status. And the status to begin will just be like idle or something like that. And then we can kick off the fetch request internally inside that composable. And when that happens, we change, we update status to fetching. And so now if we're watching that piece of status outside, like in our set, in our view component where we've called that composable, we see that status change to fetching and we can start rendering the loading spinner. And then when the request completes and the data comes back, we have logic inside a composable that updates status to fetched or completed or whatever. And now we know in our composable that we can remove the loading spinner and we can replace it with whatever data and we can render that. Whatever came back from the fetch request, our composable in theory would also return that to us as well so instead of having to worry about like async components and how this is going to render on the server and how this is all going to work if you're doing server-side rendering or even just like simpler concerns of like how do we make sure the whole app doesn't explode when we like introduce some async code into here you can just forget about all of that and instead of doing that you just watch reactive state that tells you the request has started it's in progress. Now it's completed. The data has come back. So that's how I tend to handle data fetching stuff. And then, like back to that idea of the renderless component, internally now in your fetch composable, you can use Ajax, you can use browser native fetch, you can use some other third party library that you that you have fun with. All of that stuff can be contained inside the composable. The end user who's actually calling that composable doesn't need to know about any of those implementation details. Maybe they just need to know roughly what you're using so they know what customization. Options they can pass in, but they don't need to know how the APIs work internally. They don't need to read the docs for how to use that stuff. They just call your composable, pass in their fetch URL, and they get reactive state back to tell them what to do with that data that they can watch and, and perform side effects when it changes. So now, with a composable
0: using that particular case, can you bind that to data in your components to make it reactive? So, you know, just as a way of background, one of the common ways. I always like to do things in Vue 2 is with Vue X is to use map getters, map setters, map actions, mm-hmm. map getters, map actions, map, I forget where all the maps are. But those are the ones where you define your variable in Vue X and then you update it within Vue X and it's treated as a normal variable within your component. So then when it changes there, it automatically updates the page. Mm-hmm. What's that type of, and this might be going a little out of the bounds of reusability here, but what's, how do you handle that type of, functionality in view three, maybe using a composable like you talked about. Or can you?
1: Yeah, totally. No, I think that's squarely within the the realm of this stuff. Like at the end of the day, our applications have needs and we need to find the technology that meets those needs. So we should always be pushing and, and asking those questions and figuring out, can this new shiny thing do what my old thing was able to do? And if so, does it do it better or does it do it worse? So in this case, I think you're kind of talking about just like data watching in general. Um, which you can absolutely do from inside a Composable. You can import the watch function from view, and you can set up a watcher on the fly where you you call watch um, and you pass in a, well, most of the time you would call this thing called watch effect. So you call watch effect and you pass in a callback that internally that callback is going to access some piece of reactive data and perform a side effect based on it, whether it's updating, storing that, information, another piece of reactive data, or whether it's like logging some to the console or whatever, you call watch effect, you pass in that callback, and that's how you tell View whenever this piece of reactive data changes, I want you to run this callback with the most recent value of whatever just changed, something that's coming back from a global store or, or something like that. So it's the same concept as watchers in View 2. The only difference is is that now you can write them inside of a composable. And you also don't have to have all of your watchers in one place whereas with view 2 you use the watch option and then all of your watchers everything that follows that pattern of when this thing changes do this all of that has to be in the watch option of your component so it's all in one section of code but in a composable, you can have a section at the top of your code that's like, here's this piece of data that I'm worried about. Here's some stuff that I need to do with this data when the component mounts. Here's a watcher that needs to run. Here's the side effect that needs to run with watch every time this reactive data changes. Now I'm moving down to the next section of my JavaScript function, and I'm dealing with a different piece of reactive data. And this has a different thing that happens when the component is mounted or unmounted. And I now can, set, I can call watch again in the same component You can call that watch or watch effect function again, pass it a new callback and register a new side effect to run. So instead of having all of your watchers all your when this happens, do this thing, all of those functions instead of having them in one place far away from the actual data that you're worried about or far away from other methods that might be mutating that data so you get you know like a piece of data and all of its logic is spread out all across your component now inside of your composable you can take all of that different logic all those methods watchers whatever and put them in one little section of code so when you come back to that section of code in the future you're not jumping across hundreds of lines of code in a larger component trying to figure out okay like the shape of this piece of data that we got back from the server changed so now we need to update this data in the component we need to update all of its methods that are access accessing that data and then we need to scroll down and find our watchers that depend on the data and update those as well instead of doing all that stuff and jumping around in a file or between files, you just go to this one, maybe 100-line segment of a composable and you update your stuff there. So big opportunities there for organizing code based on its logical concern instead of based on like the abstract category it fits into, like methods and watchers and stuff.
0: Now, I'm not sure I understand the use of watchers because I almost never use watchers. And I know just from a lot of use that at least in, in V2, you use computed values. So map actions, map getters and so on, you treat it as a computed value instead of having to watch it. And yeah. so that takes care of all the work for you of watching your variable and then just handling the reactivity of the updated data instead of using the actual wat- watch functions in the, in the component.
1: Yes, I think in maybe 70, 80% or more of cases, computed is more appropriate. And computed really under the hood, especially in Vue 3, it like literally is, they just create a reactive piece of data and then they use watch to update that piece of reactive data. And then they return the piece of reactive data. So like where on, on the face of things, we see like compute, we call the computed function or in Vue 2, we use the computed option. We specify which piece of data What's the name of this piece of data? And then inside the callback, we're accessing other pieces of reactive data and updating the the computed value based on that data. Internally, Vue is using watch in Vue 3. They're using watch and ref under the hood to accomplish that. So yeah, computed is, is better because instead of having to like use watch and ref separately and manage them together and organize them together, you just use computed. Even in Vue 2, you could imitate computed by setting up a data property and It's just like an empty string or whatever. And then you could watch a different, you could set up a watcher that watches a different data property. And when that data property changes, you update the first one. That's like how you could basically replace computed but it's not ideal because now instead of just having a single computed value with a nice clean definition of like a callback that tells you what this value is supposed to be based on the other one, now you're using data and watch separately to replace that functionality. Under the hood, that's how it works, but when we're not under the hood, we don't have to go through that trouble. We can just use computed. So yes, all that is to say, computed is best in 70 to 80% of cases, but there are definitely cases where watchers can be used. So one example that I just pulled up, from a composable that I've been working on lately. It's a composable that provides all the UI logic for a combo box autocomplete kind of thing. So you type in a text box and that string changes and based on whatever that string is now, you need to pull up a list of search results, whether you're like searching an app or searching some sort of list. So that's like the basic piece of UI that I'm trying to build out using only a composable not using any components or anything like that not rendering anything just doing all the underlying logic of like when you type and then you press the down arrow key it should focus the first option in the in the drop down list and then you press command down and it should jump down to the way bottom of the of the uh, of the drop down list all that kind of nitty-gritty stuff that i don't want to deal with in my actual combo box component i just want to have it tucked away somewhere so in that component i have a watcher set up that's I'm, i'm storing The when the input changes, I'm storing the input's value in a reactive piece of data. And then I watch that reactive piece of data. And whenever that piece of data changes, I run my search function again, which searches the list of options. And there's like options to customize that. So you can do fuzzy matching and stuff. So it'll, you know, if there's a typo or like a really bad typo in your search term, it'll still pull back results that are relevant to you. All that kind of stuff is is customizable through the composable options and parameters. But that's a really good example of where the watcher really comes in handy because like my search results are kind of being pulled from a different place. They're not really like computed directly just because of the string. There might be some other thing that needs to happen. Like I might need to fetch new data or whatever. Um, So I need a little bit more granular control than just like, here's my search results based on whatever the string is. Um, I actually have to like, get in and control that a little bit more. So the watcher I use instead, I just watch the string of this input and whenever that changes, I do whatever side work I need to do and then I run my search function at the end. So my application stays up to date and uh, that's like just one example of a watcher that I found in my code base right now. Plenty of other ones too, but yeah.
0: Okay, so we think we've hammered on composables for a while, but getting back to the general topic of reusability in Vue, especially... View three. What other
1: reusability tools exist in View three that you can use? So, well, we've covered. Let's see, we've done directives, mixins, renderless components, composables. I've been keeping a list. I was thinking like maybe I need an entire other book just dedicated to this, right? But I definitely have a better list somewhere that really covers a lot of it. View three, yeah, composables are definitely like the big new thing. I guess View three, you have like the setup function of components. You can do a lot of logic in there, but the setup function itself is often you want to take a lot of that, a lot of logic out of your setup function and move it into their own composables. So yeah, that's kind of the suite of tools that we have available. The The stuff that I've really been having a ton of fun lately is pushing composables themselves to the next level, kind of like creating a new category of reusable stuff. And going back to this combo box example, I have ever seen anywhere uh, an example of where somebody implemented a combo box or a list box or a multi-select or something like that, using a composable to handle all of the complex underlying stuff, like making it keyboard accessible, um, making sure that search happens at the right time with the right fuzzy matching settings, all that kind of stuff usually you would write a component and the component renders a list of options for your list box. And then the component has methods and other stuff set up with the component logic to handle keyboard events. And then in your view template, you're using like at key down dot shift a or whatever to like, um, to register different logic, to run on different keyword events. That's traditionally how you would do this kind of stuff. So maybe you could move some logic inside of a composable, but a lot of it still has to be in a component because you need a way to attach event listeners to the DOM. You need a way to bind properties to a DOM element. You need a way to register that on input event for the HTML text input so you can capture when the value changes, and you need a way to bind the value back to it. Um, if that value is changing from some other piece of state somewhere else. So a lot of composables don't get too deep into that stuff. but what I've been working a lot on lately for the past maybe year, year and a half or so is changing that and writing what I call function ref composables. And uh, that's a whole whole other topic. And um, I wrote an entire like more well over 100 page book with an update coming soon on that topic. But the basic idea is inside a composable, it is possible. We like sometimes we forget that we still have access to browser APIs. Like in a composable, you can call element dot add event listener key down and register an event listener that way. Whereas most of us would say like, I'm in view. So I have to use the at click or at key down to register this event listener. And I think we get stuck in that way of thinking very often, but it's totally, totally possible inside a composable to say on mounted when the component is mounted, add this event listener to this element. And that opens the door to saying, okay, now I know how to add event listeners to elements from inside a composable. So now I can take all this complex logic about like keyboard navigating around a list, or God forbid, a spreadsheet, which has all kinds of other different keyboard things that you have to be aware of and you can move all that logic inside a composable get it out of your components get it far far away from your business logic and uh, and implement it that way so that's that was kind of like the idea that sparked a lot of things for me and that's why I'm starting to write composables like instead of just like use dark theme where we track whether or not the user wants to have a dark theme I'm writing bigger stuff, like use ListBox and use ComboBox and uh, use Grid and things like that, where under the hood, they're doing tons and tons of work applying all these event listeners and, and making sure accessibility concerns are met and figuring out what is the actual data that we care about when these interfaces are changing and how do we track that and update it. It's doing all that stuff inside of the composable and then just returning like a giant object full of reactive data and methods that you can use to update that data and all that kind of stuff. And the key thing that really makes a lot of this possible is this tiny little niche feature of Vue 3 called function refs, where we'll back up and talk about template refs again. So a template ref in Vue is when you use the ref attribute to basically store an element in a data property. So you say like ref my element or whatever. And now in the component in view two, you can say this dot element, And now using that, you can now attach event listeners to that thing. So in view three, that looks like in your setup function, you say const my element equals ref null or ref undefined or whatever you want. And then still in the template, it looks exactly the same. You find your element and you set the ref attribute to the string my element. And view three is smart enough to figure out, okay, as soon as the component mounts, this element needs to get stored in that piece of reactive state because they're probably going to run some sort of unmounted lifecycle hook to attach an event listener or bind an attribute or whatever when that element is available. Um, So that's one way of doing it. And I had mentioned before that you can create those refs and pass them into composables as parameters But when we're talking about stuff like a list box, which is like often a list box is a maybe a list and then a rendered list of options. Like you're using v4 to loop over an array and render an option for each one of those arrays. Like, how do you how do you how do you get access to those elements and attach keyboard event listeners to each one or or bind DOM attributes to each one? And how do you like pass those into a function as a parameter when there's an arbitrary number of list box options or Cells in the table, how do you pass those references into a composable so that the composable can do what it needs to do? And the answer is you can, but you'll just end up with a huge amount of like bloated props and and function parameters in your composable. Whereas instead, you could return a function because it's a little known fact that you can actually bind a function to the ref attribute of an element instead of setting a string to the ref, instead of saying like ref equals my element, you can say ref equal you can say bind colon ref equals store my element and then store my element is a function and when the component mounts view will call that function passing in the dom element as its first parameter so super weird little tiny technical detail that i'll be surprised if anyone understands without listening to that description like 10 times because it's a really random little thing but what it allows you to do is inside a composable you can say const my element equals ref null, and then function set my el- or store my element. Accepts the element as a first parameter. And then it says my element dot value equals element. So just a little function that accepts the element as a first parameter and stores it in that reactive piece of data. And boom, you have access now to that element inside your composable. You can return that function. So you can return the function store my element from your composable. And so now the user who's calling this thing in their component, they can say they can get this store my element function from your composable and they can bind it to the ref attribute of their element. And now you're composable with basically the user doing no work at all to set up a reactive reference or know how this stuff works at all. They just bind this function that they're getting back from the composable. They bind it to the element. And now they can trust that internally your composable has access to that element, can set up all the different event listeners that are needed, can bind all the different data that needs to go onto that element and all that different stuff. So wild technical experience experiments that like make my head spin all the time. But uh, it's really, really fun stuff to play with. (laughs) Yeah, even the the studio audience seems to have perfect, clear understanding of everything I just said, right? And they loved it. I think to them, it just sounds really, really good and they're cheering for that. And if they're like (laughs) me, their head's spinning, so... Yeah, like I said, I've been doing this for like a year and a half, right? Like this is the only open source stuff I've been doing at all It's just stuff around this. So there's a lot to know. And there's a lot to learn. And that's why the book is well over 100 pages with probably another 50 to 100 pages coming soon in an update. So there's a lot to know. But the, the promise of this is just so much cleaner view templates and so much less unnecessary componentization, so much more logic reusability, and at the end of the day, like better user experiences and better accessibility and all that stuff without all of us having to re-implement all of this stuff imperfectly all of the time in every app. That's really the end goal.
0: And just to clarify, when he says promise, we're not thinking JavaScript promises or (laughs) the promise of something in general, so. Exactly. Something you need to clarify on a JavaScript podcast. (laughs) So he's mentioned his book, and we haven't mentioned that in detail. We'll call it a shameless plug here. He has a book called Rethinking Reusability in Vue. It's time to rethink and revise design patterns in Vue 3. So I was reading through the description, and you already mentioned one thing that you mentioned there in terms of the function ref pattern. Mm -hmm. But before we sort of start to close up here, um, you mentioned compound components. Yep. I'm not sure if you've discussed those yet, maybe indirectly, but uh, what are compound components?
1: Yeah, compound components, very briefly, because that's a pretty big topic too. Compound components are basically components that are designed to work together as a group. So let's take, again, this problem of how do we create a reusable list box with all kinds of keyboard event listeners going on behind the scenes. One way to do that is to define a list box component. And that list box component will have a data property or in view three, a reactive reference that tracks which option in the list box is currently focused. You could track it based on its name, like blue, red, or whatever the option is, or you could track it based on its index, based on its position in like the array of options that theoretically you're rendering with v4 in your template. So the list box needs to keep track of which one of those options is focused. And it needs to actually like perform the DOM focus side effect. It needs to grab that element and focus it. So one way you could do that with a compound component, you set up this list box root level component. Inside of that component, you use V4 to render a list of list box option components. And then behind the scenes, those list box options are, those components are interacting with the list box component Passing data behind the scenes, and this typically happens using provide and inject. Which instantly my my eyes start to blur when we talk about provide and inject. Even though there's been a bunch of different conference talks about it, it's always tricky to to figure out how that stuff works and when to use it and why. But behind the scenes, these list box options can say like well, this list box option we can add a mouse over listener. So the list box option mouse over, and it tells it can use provide and inject to tell the top level list box component hey, the mouse is on top of me right now, so I should get like a blue ring around me or whatever. I should get a background color of green to like indicate to the user, this is the option that you're focused on. This is the one that you're about to click. So these tiny little UX concerns that can get really difficult when you're trying to render a long list of options and make sure all of them are communicating with each other and only one of them gets that green background at one time, Uh, The way that you would do that is with a compound component where there's a root-level component that kind of keeps track of all of its children and all of its descendants and figures out how they're changing and what about them is changing. And and it's responsible for telling all the other components that are also nested inside of it what's going on. So definitely more advanced use cases, more niche stuff, stuff that you'll run into a lot if you're like building your own UI library, not stuff that you'd run into in the day-to-day, but compound components are a pretty decent solution for that. The downsides with them is that they can get pretty expensive to render. Like, so component instances in general are one of the more expensive, less performant things that you can render a lot of in Vue. Each component takes a, a decent amount of time to initialize for Vue, and it takes time to update it and stuff like that. So, if you're rendering like a list box component with 100 list box option components nested inside of it, Vue has to initialize every single one of those list box option components. And whenever the top level list box changes some piece of reactive data, it has to re-render all of those list box option components again to make sure that the green background is removed from the one that's no longer focused and added to the one that is focused. So all this logic starts to get really expensive. And and we're talking about like milliseconds here. So we're not measuring this in, in minutes certainly, but you have a bunch of this stuff going on on a page, a lot of these different component instances rendering and changes and updating stuff, and the milliseconds really quickly start to add up. So it's not ideal because reusability and clean code comes at the expense of performance, which is just a, a tough spot to be. It's it's really not a fun place to be. So with composables, we can sidestep all of that. We don't have to initialize components to make that logic work. The internal code gets simpler because we're not using these advanced APIs like Provide and Inject to pass this crazy logic around. We're just using simpler bits of the Vue 3 API to do that stuff. We're organizing our code a little bit better. You're not jumping across multiple component files to figure out how the list box option works with the list box and all that stuff. And yeah, more performant at the end of the day because rendering and re-rendering doesn't involve building up components and tearing them down and doing that over and over again for possibly hundreds of elements, each one of which could render multiple of its own elements, like a a list box option that's custom will usually have a span for the text and an SVG for the icon or whatever. So yeah, that stuff really adds up really quickly, especially when you're using like such a nice API where you just have to like V4 over this list box option and it looks like, oh, cool, I can render a bunch of this stuff and it's super easy. And then you get to the browser and you realize, oh, wow, I just rendered like a thousand components and uh, did not intend to do that. And now my app won't work anymore. So yeah, there's an entire chapter of the book dedicated to what compound components are and how they work. What are the benefits of them, View 2 and View 3 context? And then what are the downsides that I was kind of just touching on right now? And then there's another chapter that says like, okay, what's now we get that? Like, what, what's the next thing? How do we start to replace this stuff with composables so that our apps can get faster without having to sacrifice reusability?
0: Awesome. Okay, so before we wrap up, we'll a couple of things we want to talk about. One, Alex has a talk he did at ViewConf Toronto. That's on YouTube, Organizing Code by Logical Concern in Vue 3. We'll have the link to that in the show notes. And then finally, we only got a couple of minutes. We're going to talk about your
1: project, Baleada.
0: Mm-hmm. So why don't you give us a real quick rundown on what it is?
1: Yeah, so Baleada is just uh, the simplest way that I think about it is a toolkit for building web apps. That's my little tagline. Like I said, when I'm in control, I primarily reach for Vue. And this is my own little open source project, so pretty much everything in here is Vue-related, a little bit of Tailwind CSS stuff related as well. But the big project that is relevant to reusability in Vue, it's called Baleata Features. And it's just the idea of that package is it exports a bunch of composables that you can use to add features to your app. And this is not tiny stuff this is not small features this is bigger stuff like all of the features needed to make a list box or a custom select accessible so that's kind of the scope of that project and that's the one definitely to to uh, do a little source diving in if if that's your thing but yeah Dev is the website and um working on more docs probably will have better refreshed docs by the time this podcast episode is out but yeah it's kind of just my own little space my i guess my side note on that whole thing is like, it's really, I started this project probably three years ago, maybe more, and it has evolved a ton and changed. And at the end of the day, it like doesn't really matter to me what tools are even included in this Baleata thing. It's just a fun way to like have a place that's my own, my own little corner of the internet, where I can write my own open source code with the tools that I want, and the patterns that I think are cool, and the stuff that I love, and then I can put a little nice fun logo on it and have some fun marketing and branding it and things. That is like what I love to do with a lot of my, anything that I do in my spare time that is related to coding goes into that project because I love that little project. Even this entire book is basically just a way to like express how excited I am about some of these tools and some of the stuff that I've been playing around with in this project. So would love to field any questions if anybody wants to hit me up on Twitter about that one or contribute in any way, always open to that stuff. And highly recommend doing that. If this, if it sounds like this, you would have fun with this stuff. It doesn't have to be these massive three-year scope projects like I foolishly took on. It can be smaller stuff, but I think it's important to brand your own little corner to the internet and have your own space to, to put stuff and make your own decisions. So it's fun.
0: All right. So finally, what is a balayata? You got to describe this because yeah. to me,
1: it makes me hungry. Yeah. A It is, oh, it's just, it's like the best. It's so good. It's a savory breakfast food, basically the main cultural food in Honduras, in Central America, so... It's a tortilla, always a flour tortilla. In Honduras, they're always fresh and always handmade. And oh, those are so they're, nice. they're also made with lard, too. So they're like extra delicious. It's not just and flour, a great lard. diet food, too. Good yeah, for totally. watching calories. Totally, totally. And then on top of that, you spread refried beans, which again in Honduras are usually made with pork fat. So a nice little uh boost of cholesterol for your for your 9 a.m. You spread that with refried beans, and then that's like the basics. On top of that, they will put what they call mantequilla, which literally translates to butter, but it's more of like a mix of like heavy cream and melted butter is how we could think of it. So insane. You have to be pretty careful with that stuff, but it's delicious. You can put eggs on that, whatever. So I call this project Baleata because it reminds me of just that idea that like there's a foundational set of tools. For me, it's view, tailwind, nuxt, feet, other stuff like that. Those are like my tortilla. And then on that, on top of that, I layer some beans, which are like my own patterns and whatever and then i have got all different kinds of functions and and like utility stuff and components that i'm working on and those i think of as the baleata toppings where i can on any given day or any given project i might want some of them or i might want none of them because that's like the baleata is a very customizable food where it's all about like how you make it how you like it aside from the tortilla and beans there's nothing else that you need to have everything else is just toppings and fun so that's how i like to uh remind myself what I'm supposed to be doing with Baleata, the project. Awesome.
2: All righty. with that,
0: we will move on to Picks.
2: Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Picks are things we like to talk about
0: can be code-related, not code-related, movies, food, books, games, whatever, I will start first with the much-anticipated and highlight of every podcast, Dad Jokes. So here's a question for you. Do trees poop? The answer is, of course they do. Where else do you think we get number two pencils from? <laughs> yes, number two. There's a little double entendre there. you yeah. know. Second, so what is the difference Between a literalist and a kleptomaniac, the difference is that a literalist takes things literally, right? And a kleptomaniac takes things literally. takes (laughs) Literally. Nice. Yes. uh, Grammar matters, right? What's the term I'm looking for? Punctuation matters. There we go. You know, it's like, yeah, let's eat, grandpa. Let's eat, grandpa. You know, that type of thing, right? Classic. And then, so a weasel walks into a bar. The bartender says, wow, I never served a weasel before. What can I get for you? What do you think he says? Pop goes the weasel pop goes the weasel and then finally i was doing some uh furniture shopping and the furniture store salesman told me hey this sofa will seat five people without any problems i said where the heck am i going to find five people without any problems (laughs) thank you thank you good stuff uh yeah and that's uh Oh, also, before I go, one shameless plug, very shameless. I have been working on a course for View Mastery, uh, which is a well-known view education site on Nux 3. Uh, It's called Nux 3 Essentials. Cool. And uh, it is very basic with the idea that we can build on it later, but it's uh, a good little intro into how to get something up and running with Nux. And the added benefit is that each, there are six lessons and each lesson has a dad joke at the end. So you will uh, be entertained in more ways than one when you watch the course.
1: So that's all I have. What do you have for us, Alex? Beautiful. I uh, do have to mention what I mentioned before the show, which is my appreciation for those dad jokes since I had a, between the last time I was on Views on View and this time I had a child of my own. So, uh, dad jokes, special place in my heart. Definitely. Picks for me. I would say the uh the Netflix special, Inside by Bo Burnham is a really fantastic one. I think you know, I'm I'm no like Bo Burnham diehard fan. He certainly has them. For me it's like hit or miss sometimes, but I think that particular piece of of art is just a really nice reflection on the pandemic in general, about uh the role of the internet and information being available all the time to everybody in our in our lives. So highly recommend checking that out. Um, I thought it was hysterically funny and it taught me things about myself that I didn't know were there. So yeah, definitely would pick that one. That's my pop culture one. Maybe a little bit closer to View ecosystem. Keep an eye out for the next View updates and VEAT updates coming out. I think they're going to be super cool. Nuxt is being built on top of a lot of that stuff. So uh, always nice to dive a little bit deeper into the stack and, and figure out how what's going on behind the scenes here. Uh, it opens you up to a lot of more possibilities. So just promoing those those projects which are probably famous enough in view that they don't need more promotion, right? But it's a uh, really beautiful code, well-crafted and super fun to, to read if you get the chance. So uh, apart from that, yeah, I don't know. Just um, it's summer, right? Get outside, go for a hike. Do something with your hands. We look at screens all day in engineering. So any opportunity to pick up a new habit that forces you to get outside is always a good one. For me, it's been uh, hand tool woodworking lately. So that's a fun one, but uh, a little expensive. So maybe I wouldn't recommend that. Do hiking or something like that where you don't have to spend too much money on hand tools.
0: Yeah, the wood prices have been spending too, although from what I've seen, they seem to have been dropping lately from where they were, so that will help some for sure. Basically the worst time in history to get started with
1: woodworking, but (laughs) hey, that's where I'm at.
0: Right. Yeah, in terms of summer around here, it's been just a miserable spring. It's been like one of the wettest on record and all the, at least here in Oregon, and all the rivers are running really high and fast and cold, and so it's really messed up the fishing for my friends that are fishermen. But this last week, literally as of the summer solstice, we started getting sunny weather and boy, it came out fast and furious because we've had, it was like upper nineties, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 97, 98, 99. And of course, two of those days I had weddings, one of them outside, (laughs) but uh, fortunately it was in the evening and we were able to be in the shade. So it's actually pretty pleasant. It's sort of cooled down into the, 70s over the past couple of days. So it's been pretty nice. But I, I, I hear in other places of the country, I've heard that it's been pretty hot, which has made me
1: jealous. But has that been that way where you're at in Wisconsin? Oh, yeah, it's uh, hot and humid. It'll uh, probably get more so over the next 50 years. So drink water, stay safe, put sunscreen on. All righty. With that, we've been going a little long, so we will wrap this up.
0: Thank you, Alex, for coming and talking about reusability and view. For this and segment we is provided will talk about you in the next episode. Amazing.
2: Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.